0: In Vivo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo Podcast Between the Data. So welcome to the InVivo Podcast Between the Data. I'm Stacey Penna, the InVivo Community Director. Today's podcast is with Dr. Helen Marshall, who is an Honorary Associate in the Social and Global Study Center at Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. Helen facilitates the Qualitative Interest Group and offers in vivo support to researchers. So welcome, Helen. Thanks for being here today. Thanks
1: for asking me.
0: So you had a presentation at the NVOA virtual conference last September, and I thought it was very interesting. So I wanted to uh, share it with others. So I thought the podcast interview would be a good way to do that. So first, I just wanted to start by asking, how did you get involved with qualitative research and using NVivo?
1: Well, it was through my postgraduate study, which is a long time ago, in the 1980s. I was anxious to study Australian married couples who chosen not to have children. And the obvious person to supervise that topic was Lynn Richards, because she'd just written the book on Australian decisions about children. And Lynn was interested in qualitative methods as well as family sociology. And Lynn and her fellow supervisor, David Hickman, were the people from whom I learnt everything I know about qualitative research. It was the 1980s, so I used index cards and pencils and paper to work with my data. But as I was doing this, Lynn and her husband, Tom Richards, were developing the software that Lynn needed to help with a very large qualitative project that became the ancestor to nvivo and after my phd was through i kept in touch with lynn and tom as they moved from being academics to being software developers and set up qsr and became the developers of the original Vivo. And I saw how important that software was in the revolution that was taking place in qualitative methods. And I got really fascinated by what this sort of software was doing for data analysis. So, as well as using NVivo in my own research as an academic at RMIT, I saw how it evolved. I did some research on how people used software in qualitative data analysis and moved into teaching qualitative research methods, including the use of in vivo. Now, after Lynn retired, she actually came to RMIT as, a, as an honorary and uh, set up the qualitative interest group, which I really enjoyed attending. And when Lynn retired properly to concentrate on gardening and opera and asylum seeker support and writing methodology texts, um, I took over as chair of Quig. So that's how I got involved.
0: Based on your graduate student and professional experience, how do you think most graduate students learn qualitative
1: analysis? Okay, well, based on my now long ago experience as a supervisor, since I've technically retired in two thousand and six, and my much more recent conversations with lots and lots of postgraduates in my role as an in vivo support person at RMIT, I suspect that they learn the same way as I did. They learn mainly on the job, wrestling with their own data, and. How you handle qualitative data is a very individual matter depending on who you are and what the project is and what the data are. The conversations I've had with people about how they're learning on the job are what actually led me to that presentation at the online conference. And I can give you the background to that presentation if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I've been really struck by the difference between my experience as a postgraduate of learning how to handle data and what students now tell me. We've got in common that we learn on the job, but there are big differences. Today's students, it seemed to me, have much more formal training before they start and they seem to me to be well supported in learning how to collect data, but they seem much too often to feel left on their own as they analyse and I've had really sad comments where people have said things like I don't think my supervisor understands anything about the project I'm doing that was just not my experience if somebody says to me I really struggle to know what to do with my data I can go yep I sympathise I've been there done that But if they say my supervisor isn't on the same page with the project, I didn't feel that at all. I never had the feeling that Lynn Richards and David Hickman's version of what I was doing in my PhD was a different version from mine. And thinking about this, I was also working on issues around reusing qualitative data and I came across a really useful idea which is, Head notes. And I now think that the difference between my experience and the experience of a lot of postgraduates today is that Lynn and David and I were able to share a lot of my head notes and that it's something that some postgraduates can't do today. And I started to think that in vivo might in fact help people share head notes.
0: Can you actually describe what
1: headnotes are? Sure. The idea, as I say, came up in material on reusing qualitative data. And um, headnotes are that sort of background context. They're those really messy ideas and impressions and emotions that we're really only half conscious about unless we stop and work really hard. And they shape how we think about our research questions and our methods and our data and our conclusions, they really, they underlie any sort of scrap of data we pick up and any sentence written at any stage during research project. They they exist in all phases in that sort of context of discovery where you're collecting the data, things like those scratch notes that anthropologists write while they're in the field watching what's going on in the village. There are head notes in there that are shaping what it is that the research is seeing and hearing, that her prior understandings of the project, the circumstances she's there in the field, aspects of her personality, all those things shape those scratch notes and they go on shaping what you do with the scratch notes as they turn into perhaps field notes and and they shape the coding and the analytic notes you make and the drafts you do and it's a kind of uh, recursive process what you've seen in the field shapes how you code how you code shapes how you're thinking about analysis reading you do gets you thinking again and shifts things a bit and you know you do more coding you do more analysis and all the time the head notes are bubbling along underneath changing. So, you know, we've all had the experience probably of of someone who's had a research project that starts out with a question that's kind of got one set of nuances. And as the project goes on, the research question changes, even if the words stay the same, the nuance of the project has changed enormously. And that was my own experience. And as a postgraduate Lynn and David were able to understand all the time pretty much where I was coming from and so it got easier for me to understand where I was coming from and what I was doing. However, it took an awful lot of time and effort for all of us and I reckon software like Vivo can make that process a bit easier so that Hopefully everybody could have the really positive experience I had. The more I could talk about the headnotes, the more I understood what my project was and Lynn and David understood it and could give me targeted advice. Now, I was really lucky. I was working in the 1980s and supervisors had a bit more time and academics in general were somewhat less pressured I was lucky because I was quite happy to communicate in writing from the start of the project and to use writing as a way of clarifying my own ideas and Lynn and David were happy to read and I was really, really, really lucky that they were so dedicated and put in so much time reading and discussing. We got the headnotes out I don't think today's postgrads are that lucky, but I think In Vivo can do a bit of what Lynn and David and I were able to do with writing and talking.
0: That makes sense. And so then the part of your presentation sort of went into that and talked about how you can use a tool like In Vivo to really help students, graduate students with their head notes and be able to share that with the supervisor. So you had some seven to eight suggestions that you Thought the software could help with. Do you mind going
1: over those with us? Happy to. Happy to. Yeah. Okay. Well, Invivo can help students reveal their headnotes to supervisors through coding. And there's two aspects to that. And I can kind of talk about how the process was prior to Invivo with Lynn and David, and then what InVivo could do. The two aspects to looking at Coding that can be useful, I reckon, are that early on, as you're learning how to be a qualitative researcher, one of the key things you need to learn is is how to be rigorous, particularly being rigorous with your coding. And I had to learn that with writing and talking, and I got a really sharp lesson because I was I was pretty dumb. I had interviewed some married couples who chosen not to have children. The First round of interviews, I did a study that had uh, three phases and the first phase I was focusing on what lay behind their decisions, asking about reasons. And uh, Lynn and David insisted that I code each interview pretty much as I did it and that I talk with them about what was going on. I coded the first couple of interviews and wrote up what I thought was a really schmick account. (laughs) an articulate and really persuasive participant who'd already got his PhD (laughs) explained at length that his unhappy childhood was what led him to decide not to have children. It was the very first interview I did. And having heard Andrew's story... I kind of heard it in everything. The head notes in the interview with Andrew's wife, Alison, and then in the interviews with uh, with Bill and Brenda and Con and Clara, they were all about unhappy childhoods as far as I was concerned. So I wrote this up and sent a piece to Lynn and David, who were experienced researchers, and spotted, aha, she's been swayed by one participant and she's not really looking carefully at her data. So we had a meeting and they took me through what I'd written and they asked about my coding. And they pointed out very gently but very firmly that, first of all, I'd relied much too heavily on Andrew's data. And second, I was interpreting everyone else's data as though it agreed with Andrew's. And in almost all the cases of the comments I'd mentioned, you could make an alternative interpretation. The only person who had themselves had an unhappy childhood was Andrew. At the end of the meeting, I realised, one, that the simple idea of unhappy childhoods was not the answer to my research question, and two that it was really important to rigorously think about your own coding and to question it. And and from David, I learnt the idea of questioning it by setting up a null hypothesis and going, you know, couples don't have unhappy childhoods. What's the evidence for that and against it? Now, that was a really long meeting and it involved Lynn and David in a lot of reading and questioning suppose in vivo had been around and i'd been using it lynn and david could have said show us one of your key nodes and i'd have gone here the unhappy childhood stuff and they would have seen exactly the same thing oh the first 10 references in that note come from andrew and look everything afterwards are you really sure that Alison's comment is about an unhappy childhood isn't it more about her mum wasn't exactly happy as a mother and you know Bill and Brenda is it really that they've had unhappy childhoods or that they're just telling you that their childhood influenced their decision And it had good things in it and bad things. So just looking at data in a node could be really useful for helping students learn how to code rigorously and for giving supervisors a sense of where they're at. So that's one of the things that you can do, look at a node. The other thing that I think would have been really useful and that lots of people have done since is look at an entire source and see how it's been coded. Lynn actually started this when she kicked off the precursor to the qualitative interest group. Lots of her students would get together and someone would bring in, usually not an entire interview or observation, but a substantial chunk of data, and we'd do an open coding session and all code it, and through talking with the researcher about how they were coding people got to understand their head notes and the researcher also got to understand that there might be other things to look for in the data. That gets really easy these days because you can show transcripts or notes with coding stripes. If you're showing a project on in an open in vivo project, just turn on coding stripes, the coding stripes for the key concepts, ignore the stuff like the coding for the case, but turn on what you as a researcher think is interesting and you can have colleagues or supervisors look at it and question the data. And one of the things that that does is if you can see how someone's coding as a supervisor, you can avoid making suggestions that, aren't useful. The one that comes to mind with my work is that I had a bit of data that might have pushed the project in a kind of social psychology direction, but it wasn't in the back of my mind. I'm much more a sociologist than a psychologist, and it wouldn't have been helpful to suggest that I look at anything like, you know, psychoanalytic literature about childhood even though I had a friend also supervised by Lynn and David whose project on women deciding not to marry was enormously helped by a psychoanalytic perspective and it was something that David was quite interested in. But by seeing that it wasn't my head notes, they just left all that aside and concentrated on asking useful questions and making useful suggestions for what I was getting interested in. So, I reckon coding stripes can be a really useful aid for supervisors. And one of the things that you can do, both to help teach rigorous coding and to see what's in the student's mind as a supervisor, is suggest that, like lots of people now, they might find it useful to do some coding of literature and use in vivo to help with the literature review. And there's a lot of stuff. You've had a podcast, I think, about it. There's a lot of stuff about that and it's something that that makes great sense and supervisors can then ask to see the coding stripes in the key documents that have been put into the lit review and get a sense for the head notes and also talk about rigour. So I think that's another thing that can be really useful. That's um, sort of two ways where talking about coding can be useful. There's another thing about coding. As the project goes on, I think supervisors can help a lot by looking at the coding structure, you know, how your thoughts show up in your coding structure. You're seeing themes where there's subcategories, the tree nodes that grow show them. If you've reached the stage where you're actually able to get some theory out of your data, the node names change and you begin to see, you know, there's stuff about this topic and that topic and then there's this theoretical concept and it might link to other theoretical concepts. So getting a sense of the coding structure can be really useful. Lynn and David ended up at one stage with me on a a whiteboard writing and drawing the coding I'd done. By then I'd got upwards of 100 nodes. I think that was well on in the project. <laughs> and it might have been useful if, we, if we'd been able to do it more efficiently and Vivo enables it more efficiently. You can either, you can look at the expanded list view, you can export a list of codes or you can map it in various ways. You can have a concept map of your nodes you can play with live with your supervisor looking on, or you can you can send a project map mm-hmm. to the supervisor um, as a, yeah, just I as a, a JPEG that they can look at. There's lots of ways you can show the coding structure yeah. and it's it's a really good thing to do, I think. We'll take a short
0: break from the podcast. Dr. Marshall wanted to share how to find the work of her advisor, Lynn Richards, by directing you to the companion website for Handling Qualitative Data, a practical guide, fourth edition, published by Sage. Visit study.sagepub.com slash Richards number four e. I found that helpful when I was in my doctoral program with my advisor because I could export show my coding process. And that way she was able to catch some things before I got too deep right in the weeds, like you said, with your coding so that she could put me in the right direction. And and that was very, very
1: helpful. And I think that's something that lots of people now do. And there's something else in in Vivo in the Windows version that I reckon is really useful. As you're going on with your analysis, there's something you can do to show how you're seeing connections that doesn't mean that the student has to write masses or the supervisor has to read masses, and that's to use annotations and see allsos And lots of people love them. Annotations people use for all sorts of purposes and the nice thing about them is that anything you've annotated any part of a a node or a, a document or whatever the annotation travels wherever you you put that yeah. bit of the, the yeah one,
0: one researcher i've talked to he uses annotations to start his coding process it's almost with his his like open coding starts there with the annotations
1: yeah i've got a colleague who who does that as well but as a supervisor, I think the, the useful thing is the student who likes to annotate or who, who needs to remind herself that you know this bit of data, this quote that sounds like they're positive about something because they were rolling their eyebrows and or eyeballs and sticking their tongue out, they were actually making a negative comment. That can just be sitting there and the supervisor looking, going, "Why is that comment?" coded as negative, clicks the annotation and says, oh, you know, the context, yeah, I I get that. And they go, oh, yeah, right. So this student is now understanding the importance of reflecting on what's going on and telling people about it. So if that comment ever makes it as a quote in the thesis, there'll be this little note that says, this isn't really a positive comment because at the time it was said, the participant stuck out their tongue and rolled their eyeballs. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, you yeah, know, annotations can be useful. They can also, yeah, they can help you get to head notes. actually. Mm-hmm. If people who use annotations as, as the start of coding, they could just send the source to the supervisor with the annotations and the supervisor can look down and go, okay, what's that note mean? You're going to call it ideology, what's in your head there and that begins to get head notes out of the researcher's head and helps move them towards getting on paper in the final thesis and see alsos i think can do the same kind of thing because we can use we use them to connect up items in the project to references in two separate nodes or two references from two or three in- interviews or the one we use a see-also that links a bit of theory to a bit of data. And if you're seeing see-alsos and getting those sorts of connections, then the direction of the project is becoming clearer, again, without the student having to sit down and write a really long account that's, uh, you know, where they're at theoretically at this point, and the supervisor having to read it. So, annotations and see alsos can be really useful for showing connections as the work is proceeding. And then, as you've got to the point where you've done let's say, all the coding around a part of your research question, then I reckon the fifth really useful tool that's available to people who've got in vivo for Windows is the framework matrix table. I guess I like them because... uh, they. I I do too. (laughs) I love them. They were kind of the way I started to make sense of my own data and to be able to communicate it only I didn't have in vivo I First of all, drew and wrote pencil notes about what I had in my coded data, which was a set of index cards in boxes, (laughs) and then I typed up a table and Lynn and David read the table and what I'd written about it. The framework matrix table has the row for each case and columns for the coding. Queries. Are really useful. I think a lot of the time students run their queries and get some results and wait till they're actually drafting before they actually write about what they've done and what they've found and I think it can be really helpful if the supervisor can actually focus on what query tools are you using uh, and what are you finding as my project went on, it got clearer and clearer to all of us that what I was interested in was ideology, and that ended up as the theoretical framework. And the examiners quite liked it. <laughs> um, so, and it sort of became clear because Lynn and David would be talking about what I was doing, and I was more and more. I was going, "Oh, look, there's this really interesting." stuff where they keep using the word natural and I've gone through and I found that everybody uses it and you know people use it in slightly different ways and here's how they're using it. Okay, took forever a for me to interrogate the word natural and b for Lynn and David to read through you know what I was doing. If we'd had en vivo, they would have said what sort of queries are you running and I would have said I've done text searches for this and this and this. And the natural one, look, it's really interesting. Let me show you what I've got. And uh, we could have just talked through quite quickly by focusing on what I was doing. I think that the more I became a supervisor myself, the more I found that lots of students are very shy about showing writing before they're ready. But they're often very happy to show you what they've done and you can then talk productively about what they've done and there's plenty of room there to help students, uh, if you're an Vivo user, you know, help them work out what queries might be useful, make sure that they are running the queries properly, say with word frequencies and text searches, that they're making sure that they are not counting in the interviewer using the word natural, they've only got the participants. You can give that targeted help that really pushes the project forward. So queries can be really useful. And then there's a, there's another thing, supervisors might sometimes just find it difficult to remember who is in a project. If you've got lots of students and they're working perhaps in similar areas and the student comes in t- telling you about Andrew and Alison, you're going, oh, God, who are Andrew and Alison? Is, is, is Andrew the librarian or is that somebody else? And Lynn and David knew who Andrew and Alison were partly because I kept on and on about my data and my participants and partly because when I'd... Found all the participants. I wrote up little biographies and and just gave them a document. But if we'd had in vivo, I could have done it much more easily by just printing out the case classification sheet, and they would then have known that Andrew and Alison were married, and <laughs> was the philosopher, and uh, that you know they were this age, and Great. they'd also have seen stuff that. They might not have picked up in earlier discussions like um, I'd thought to ask people about their position in their family and I'd recorded, you know, how many siblings they had and whether they were eldest, youngest, whatever, because I was reading the literature in my area and it was saying you know, position in family of origin might be important. And that wasn't necessarily something that my supervisors knew till I told them and it something that shows up really clearly in a classification sheet. And, of course, classification sheets are the sort of thing that you can put into an appendix in the thesis to show your sample characteristics, or you can use it as the basis for the charts that show sample characteristics. So it's the kind of thing that you're probably doing as a researcher anyway, and it can be really useful for helping your supervisors remember your project and get further into how you're seeing the project. So those are kind of the seven things that NVivo can do.
0: Yeah, no, I I think it's great. I I found it, like you described, I was lucky enough to have a a supervisor who used NVivo too, so it made it a lot easier to show my progress, but what happens if a supervisor doesn't have Nvivo or isn't familiar with it? What would you suggest?
1: Ah, okay. Well, there, I think the student has to do a little bit of managing the supervisor, which is something that students probably have to do anyway. You can, with a lot of those tools in Nvivo, you can print out And they don't rely on the supervisor understanding very much at all about what in vivo is. A case classification sheet you can send electronically, or you can literally print it out, and the supervisor just has it. You've done some coding, you only need to suggest to your supervisor that at the next meeting, the pair of you talk about your first interview and the coding, and they look at the coding stripes. Now, they'll probably want to do a little bit of reading there beforehand so you can just export the source showing coding stripes. Again, if the supervisor is somebody who really prefers to work on paper, well, you can just print with coding stripes. You can export nodes. you You can take them out and just as word documents and you can have annotations and see also turning up as footnotes You, you know that's available in export so you can show how you've thought about a particular category and you can give contextual detail as needed. Moving on if you've done more coding and you want to show your coding structure you could just take your laptop in, open your InVivo project, go to the list view of the nodes, expand the list view and say look at the screen. But it might help even more if you exported the list of nodes, which you can do and your supervisor can get it electronically or they can get it printed. Or you can map those nodes and show them. And it depends on what you want to do. But if if you're a visual thinker, maybe... um, a concept map or a project map will help you think and you can put in some explanatory arrows as needed and send it and if you and your supervisor are visually oriented, you can have a really productive discussion about your coding that's based on a map of the coding. And your framework matrix table, you can export and print the actual table. And that's useful. If you wanted your supervisor to give you some advice about the coding, it might be better to take the laptop in, open up the project with the framework matrix and have the associated view available so that the supervisor can can look at what's in a cell, especially if you've done that thing that's, that is really useful with the framework matrix where instead of just auto summarising and plonking all the data into the cell, which often doesn't work visually anyway, there's usually too much to fit into those <laughs> tiny little cells, you've summarised the data down, you've cut and pasted or you've paraphrased it yourself and the table looks lovely but you want the supervisor to push you a bit about the contents I'd be inclined to show them a framework matrix on the computer with the associate view available so they can go from your table to the actual data right
0: and read it yeah no that makes sense Mm -hmm. and I think something like that when I was working towards writing my dissertation we had actually student groups that would get together to and present. Your in vivo project to a group of people, which was really helpful too, because you know your advisor. That's great, but it was good to get feedback from other people, and you could show it. So it's nice. I mean, it it, it
1: makes qualitative research more transparent. And the supervisor doesn't need to understand what you're doing with in vivo. They can just look at, oh, there's the data. There's what you're thinking about. They can go, hang on, is that really about (laughs) unhappy childhood? Yeah. Right. I and think it's getting, always
0: about an unhappy childhood, though, Helen. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can do the same with the queries. Yeah. You can either. You can send the results of the query. And if you're doing that, it'd be really nice to give your supervisor the, the memo where you've noted down what right. you think the query means. Yep. Or you can actually sit there with the supervisor and say, well, you know, I'm playing with these ideas about language so what I'm going to do is count up how often this word is used blah 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 and show them and look this is what I've got and they can then say well that's interesting isn't the next thing to have a look at the context where that word pops up and then the supervisor doesn't have a clue that in vivo can do this but if the students had a a decent amount of in vivo training they'll go ah Okay, so I can expand the coding and look at those quotes in context.
0: Yeah, oh, that's great. So one last question I have is what's one piece of advice, just one you would give a supervisor working with graduate students? Because I know you have ex-
1: a lot of experience in this. Okay, well, I reckon the, the advice I'd have is one way or another try and get to understand what's in the students' heads by dealing with their data. If it works for you to do it by having them write and you can force them to write, which may be difficult, by all means curl up in bed and read 20,000 words of preliminary (laughs) analysis. But it's probably more efficient to work with the student to work out how are they going to show you what they're doing, and in vivo can really help you see what students are doing with their data in ways that'll give you access to those head notes and help you give them the advice that'll make for a rigorous project and that will help them sneak up on writing. There's been discussion about in vivo and writing as well. All of this stuff where students are doing things, if they're writing memos and they can be memos just for themselves about what they've learned, then as a supervisor you can feel a bit more confident that stuff is being amassed so that when they come to the drafting stage they will have something to at least begin with and they help. You, as a supervisor, move away from the concern about is this writing clear and can they use apostrophes? And there, I'm sure there are lots of supervisors my age who get so hung up about students using <laughs> <who think> apostrophes that <laughs> they don't say anything helpful about the thinking. And right. The thinking right first, mm-hmm. then you right. can stop worrying that, about right. apostrophes <laughs> till it's the right time. <laughs>
0: Well, Ellen, this is really interesting and um, I'm I'm sure a lot of people got a a lot out of learning how you can use in vivo to get into the student's head. Basically, that's what you're saying with the the head note. So thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about Envivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.invivo by slash community or email me, Stacy Penna, at S.penna, P-E-N-N-A at Qsr